it's a gift, right, to have people with the experience and knowledge of the institution go out and actually gain the skills that they don't have that can be incredibly valuable and then bring them back in. The culture has to change where if somebody comes and says, I want to get a PhD in data science, then the answer should be, oh my God, that's amazing, rather than have an adverse impact on your career. Hello, I'm Alex Bolfres. It's my pleasure to welcome you to FP21 Minutes, a podcast dedicated to evidence and integrity in foreign policy. We bring you conversations between practitioners and researchers about how American foreign policy is made and how it can be made better. Stay tuned to hear what they have to say. This week, Dan Spikajny, the FP21 founder and CEO, is back with a conversation with Maryam Safi. She is currently a U.S. diplomat, appearing here in her personal capacity. The views she is generously sharing with us do not reflect her current or past institutional affiliations. She will discuss her personal and professional experiences in depth as part of the conversation. But up front, it might be helpful to know that Dan and her are discussing a Truman Center report. If you'd like to look that up, you can find it on the Truman Center's website under the title Transforming State Pathways to a More Just, Equitable, and Innovative Institution. In the conversation, she shares with Dan her personal perspective on re-entering the State Department with a refreshed set of ideas, and together they explore proposals for how these kinds of broadening career experiences could be made more common and accessible to career civil servants and foreign service officers in the Department of State. I'm Miriam Seifi. I am a mid-career foreign service officer. I have been in the department for just over a decade. I started my public service career as a Peace Corps volunteer in Jordan many years ago. Then I did AmeriCorps, so I got the domestic version and mainly focused my career in the Middle East with postings in Cairo, Baghdad, and then Erbil, the northern part of Iraq and Kurdistan, as well as a couple of assignments in Washington focused on policy, one in the Secretary's Office of Religion and Global Affairs, and the other in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues. And then most recently, I was the spokesperson for our consulate in Lahore in Pakistan. But I've actually coming off of a two-year leave without pay or a sabbatical period, where I did a couple of fellowships, one with the Council on Foreign Relations through the International Affairs Fellowship Program, and the other with the Truman Center for National Policy. That leave you just took from the Department of State. I would love to know what the experience has been like for you stepping out of this department culture. Being a woman of color, it's hard to deal with the racism that happens and the sexism that happens overseas when you're not perceived as being an American, as well as sometimes the unconscious bias or maybe less unconscious bias that's happening within the institution. That's not unique to State Department, but that's something that's happening everywhere. But feeling that weight over the course of so many years, when I had the opportunity after Pakistan, I realized I just need a break. It was an intense period there. I was about to burn out. 
if I hadn't taken this leave without pay, I probably would have potentially even left the department and been another data point for the GAO report (laughs) that would come out on the numbers of the lack of diversity when it comes to women and and women of color in particular. So that was my moment to push pause. And I was pretty grateful that the department actually had revised the policy on leave without pay as I was taking a year off formally for this fellowship opportunity with the Council on Foreign Relations, where I was posted in a human rights organization. That was for me really fascinating too, to just be outside the culture, because it's a culture that really hardwires you sometimes to just keep your head down. Don't rock the boat. I had a almost like an awakening and a rediscovery of myself over the course of the two years. When I did the Truman Center for National Policy, I was a senior fellow leading a task force of about 30 mid-level officers. That was interesting for me because I could get into the guts of the institution and understand with the co-authors, the 30 other co-authors, we really were processing quite a bit. Being able to push pause and then also do a deep dive reflection made me realize that how programmed I was, like, you know, when I was in the department and the deprogramming that happened when I left for that sabbatical year has given me a fresh set of eyes. When I compare the Department of State and diplomacy and, and foreign policy to our friends, as we say, across the river, the Department of Defense, they seem to have a much healthier ecosystem for the way that current and former officials, whether they be active duty military or civilian or otherwise, can speak about the work that they do. There are official journals and magazines. There are war colleges that people go in and out of five different war colleges. There's systems of federally funded research and development centers. Are there ways that the State Department might be able to build a healthier ecosystem to do the type of work that you've done to to be able to step away from the day-to-day and say, what are the, the challenges that I'm facing that are keeping me from being more productive more effective at my job and, and solving the problems that I face. How, how can the State Department do that better? One step is making the leave without pay process more more accessible. And I think they've actually done that recently. I'm a case study of success for them in terms of that, because I was about to, I was a year in and I was about to start bidding to try to find a way back in. Having that flexibility of people being able to come in, exit, maybe get a degree, maybe they want to do architecture or something not even related to foreign policy. All of these things can have implications later. Some of it could be very strategic. Part of it is maybe doing a mapping of what are the needs of the 21st century in terms of skills. We're living in a time of disinformation. There's artificial intelligence or all these uh, machine learning. There are all these things happening that are we may not have the literacy to report on. And so having the ability to have time off or incentivizing higher education in, in critical areas, critical needs areas, I think is really important. The military and the the Department of Defense, they have more resources. And so part of the issue for the State Department is that we don't have the funding for a lot of things. And even, for example, when I looked at the accountability section, a lot of best practices actually came, we were benchmarking from Department of Defense, but they also have money. And so there was one thing that that we said, if people are filing grievances, for example, right now at the Foreign Service, within the Foreign Service structure, there's a volunteer who's an an EEO, Equal Employment Opportunity Counselor. And that's someone volunteering, that's someone who might be embedded in this power hierarchy where they're also now in the mix of something that could be potentially not beneficial for their career or mobility, if especially if the person in question is maybe in their chain of command. So what if we were to have a foreign service specialist corps of people who are trained, maybe regionally deployed, 
So maybe not in every embassy, but like regionally available, just like we have regional medical officers, like regional EEO counselors who can then, they're trained in mediation and understanding the, the very granular nuances of the department and these structures so that they can really be that resource. And that can be huge as if somebody's struggling. And because what ends up happening is somebody has maybe a really traumatic experience and there's no, re- there's no outlet for accountability. There's no resource. And then they just leave. That's what they do. They just leave. A friend wanted to just take two years, I think, of leave without pay. And she was just denied. No, you can't. And her husband wanted to go to law school. And it was basically her marriage or her career. And she chose her marriage. And she's now no longer in the department. And here's someone we invested in. She's done such great work. And she's still doing great work. But it's unfortunate that we lose people that way. If we were to create more of a revolving door where people can come back or they can take time away and come back either for education or for personal reasons or just life happening, that would help with attrition, but it would also help in infusing the institution with more creativity and innovation. If somebody goes and works for Facebook or Google for a year or two years, they have this new set of eyes, all of these new networks as well. They can bring that into the department. And that's something that is just so critical it's like oxygen for the department to really grow and breathe and meet the moment because the moment is not easy. It's a gift, right, to have people with the experience and knowledge of the institution go out and actually gain the skills that they don't have that could be incredibly valuable and then bring them back in. If we had more fluidity with the leave without pay system, it's getting there though, which is good news, but it needs to be institutionalized and prioritized. The culture has to change where if somebody comes and says, I want to get a PhD in data science, then the answer should be, oh my God, that's amazing, rather than have an adverse impact on your career. Maybe we should even consider paying people. If we can identify where are the gaps, right? What do we need? The resources may not be there to fund all foreign service officers to get PhDs. But if we know that there's these critical areas, then creating a, a process for higher education that is compensated through details, we do have things like that. You know, we have the program at Princeton, for example. So we, there's a model for this that already exists. But I think a big piece of it will be having more funding to do it. So having appropriations to actually really right size and fund the State Department in a way that it will never match the Department of Defense, but at least having a bit more allocation of resources. In addition to the training in terms of higher education and skills development in core areas, also state and local diplomacy. Mayors and governors are on the front lines of foreign policy every day. California is the fifth largest economy in the world. These subnational actors, mayors and governors, are already crafting their own foreign policies anyway. It would be so beneficial for foreign service officers and civil service to be embedded as details in Portland, in Omaha. So then we can better understand what the needs are. This foreign policy for the middle class that's being rolled out. What are the actual needs happening geographically, not just in the urban centers or Silicon Valley because tech is there, but it's more, and we know now it's more diffuse anyway. What's happening in in the heartland and places, there's granularity on the ground that could be really beneficial to have foreign policy presence in these places that then can come back into the department and say, oh yeah, when I was posted in Omaha, rather than I was posted overseas, because that, that also can shape our policy as well and create more diverse lived experience based on the postings and where people are. I'm really appreciating more due to this conversation, Miriam, the connection between the diverse experiences, both lived experiences, but also 
professional educational experiences that people bring to the table to be able to pick what those issues are that we need to invest in more. That if you rely only on the the elites, quote unquote, if you rely only on the most senior officials in the department to say, here's the three issues that I think are vital to invest in, you're going to miss this vast set of experiences of Mr. Ambassador, Mrs. Ambassador. When I was engaged in this environment, I I see that this is going to be so vital for the future of our foreign policy or to to help the American people or to engage more productively. There's such a vital nexus here between valuing diverse experiences and the diversity of people that makes America so great. There's been an idea floated about having a mid-career parachute in type of program. People, for example, with PhDs, do you really want to start as an O3 at the very bottom of the scale when you have debts to pay for however many decades of edu- you know, education you've had to invest in? I was thinking about the regional medical officers. These are physicians, right? These are people who pretty much start at the higher pay rate because their their levels of education and just time it took them to get where they are. What if we had something similar, this mid-career specialist program, where then people were based on identified needs, we say we need a whole cadre of data literate foreign service specialists. They don't have to be in every post, but have this kind of concentrated expertise where it's needed. What if we then recruited for those people and then brought them in this kind of mid-career channel? And then with that, you're looking for that expertise, but making sure that the people we're bringing in are also diverse by race, gender, et cetera. So then it's a very targeted need. And it's rather than just saying we need to add more diversity in from the top because somehow that'll magically make everything better. That's not the case, right? Because we know if the institutional structures aren't there, if the culture, keep your head down culture continues and there's no accountability for perpetrators of abuse, then no matter how many people of color you parachute in, that's not going to fix the, it's a cosmetic fix but it's going to, again, the attrition will still happen. And you've created another structural barrier over the existing mid-level women of color, people of color who are not getting, they're just not getting promoted anyway. So now you've reduced the number of positions for them to get promoted into, creating this even greater scarcity and also resentment. That's the, because then people will see any person of color in any position that's at a higher level and make assumptions like, oh, maybe this, the reason they're there is because they're like a charity case rather than competent. It's a good idea in terms of the intent, but in terms of how it would land, I think it's going to be a challenge to do the generalist one. I wonder if I could push you to talk about how do we get from good ideas to real change within the institution? What's yep. your theory or your plan or your vision of how we, we, we actually take action on the things that we've talked about that seems so pressing? That's a great question. It's one I'm thinking about a lot because there's been a lot of listening sessions, right? Like just a proliferation of people talking, people sharing ideas. But then how do you actually operationalize these ideas? Even the task force, right? Like 55 pages of idea, lots of things happening. And then how do you chip away and actually take parts of it? And some of that I'm starting to see already happening, where, for example, one of our top line recommendations was creating a chief diversity inclusion officer and having that person report directly to the secretary. And our co-chair happened to be happens to now be that person. But there was also, I, I would say, one possible strategy, which I think I learned when I was on leading this task force is to actually create organic spaces for these kinds of task forces to happen intuitively. Just if somebody has an idea, having it be encouraged within the institution to say you can take 10% of your 
workday or whatever, um, or 10% of your, your time of responsibilities and focus on something else that may not be, it, it could be linked to your work or it could be an idea that you have and then give permission and make it not just a voluntary thing, but something that's incentivized so that you have these maybe mini task forces that are happening. People assemble it themselves. They bring together people. So then it also gives people who are lower down on the totem pole um, and the caste system, the ability to be a leader. Like in my case, for example, in the department, I'm not so high up in the caste system that I would ever really be ever seen as a leader. But when I left the department and then I led this thing, I realized, oh no, I am a leader actually. I can do this. It, it can encourage leadership at, at the decentralized levels so that people can have opportunities to prove themselves. If you created structures like that, and then on top of that, have a mechanism, maybe in the policy planning office or some office where it's we welcome new ideas. So instead of it just being like a sounding board of, okay, I have a random thought, but no, if you want to submit, you have to create the task force, you have to produce something that's been crowdsourced, maybe create a criteria for how to do this so that it's a bit more substantive than just saying, what if we did this random thing? Then that way you're creating almost a culture of creative thought at all levels of the department so that it's not just the top layer gets to be creative. And usually that layer is too risk averse to be creative because they want to move to the next layer. So this is a way of inspiring people. We've seen it with Secretary Blinken. He said that Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winslandley is a diplomat who knows when to be undiplomatic. And we should all listen to her and to others that are speaking that truth. And so, so having that culture, he's able to say it and it's starting to trickle down. But you also need to have structural mechanisms to incentivize this further so that it's not just words on a page, but becomes institutionalized. If you haven't had the opportunity to look at The Week in Reform, our roundup of news and views in the making of American foreign policy, I strongly encourage you to do so. This week, Thomas Scher has guest edited a really compelling selection for us. One of the items is a review of a review of the many first 100-day reviews of the Biden administration's foreign policy. Another item in there that I personally care about a lot has to do with government secrecy and overclassification. In my day job, I'm a researcher of foreign policy, so I have a personal vested interest in being able to access the information that's being produced by the government. A theme of this podcast series is how little use the government makes of its own information, so it's a real shame to cut off others who might be able to mine for practical insights and lessons with that information. But I'm also passionate about the value to American democracy of being able to understand how its own government works and sometimes doesn't work all that well. I've also had the privilege of seeing just how many researchers come to the United States from all over the world, often to learn about their own country's history from American archives. And that's because traditionally the United States has been a leader in government openness. But many of the systems and procedures in place to ensure that openness have become severely outdated and are rarely functioning the way they were intended to. That's all we thought you might want to hear this week. If it wasn't, you can file a complaint at podcast at fp21.org. Encouraging comments and ideas for future episodes are, of course, welcome, too. The podcast is brought to you by FP21, a nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of evidence and integrity in American foreign policy. 
You can find out more about the organization, how to get involved, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at fp21.org. We tweet at fp21.org. Special thanks to our intern, Michelle Wright, and to Ronan McDermott for composing our theme music. Thank you.